0: Hey, good morning. My name is Drew, one of the pastors here, and we've actually been in this message series in the book of James. And of course, James, he's the brother of Jesus, and he writes this letter, and we talked about it a few weeks ago how James, when he writes the letter, he basically says, I am a servant of Jesus, uh, who is my Lord who has resurrected from the grave. I mean, it's just this astounding kind of statement to make about someone you grew up with, you know? So if you can imagine, James writes this letter, and uh, in many ways, this letter is akin to a lot of the wisdom literature that exists in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, for instance, or as Jesus was teaching, many wisdom teachings uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter five, for instance. So that's why, if you're not a Christian here, welcome. We're so glad you're here, because the wisdom tradition, this is what it means, Um, hopefully, even if you're not a Christian, every single time that we've uh, had a message or we've read from the scriptures about what James is writing about, hopefully, even if you're not a Christian, you're probably leaning in saying, yep, yep, yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense that, Trials and temptations, the way that we face trials and temptations is that what we do with trials and temptations would definitely forge our own maturity, for instance, right? Well, when he talks about uh, being slow to speak, slow to, uh, to anger, and quick to listen, hopefully, you, even if you're not a Christian, you listen to that and you're like, yeah, that, that seems very wise, Or last week when we talked about equality and how there's a Christian basis for equality that comes from um, our, our belief in Jesus and what Jesus has done and how Jesus, in Jesus, none of us are inferior to anyone nor are we superior to anyone. And hopefully, as you listen to that message, even if you're not a Christian, you're leaning in and you're like, yep. That makes a lot of sense, uh, because that's what wisdom is. Now, of course, the Christian underpinnings of why we believe the things that we do when it comes to trials and temptations, to listening and doing, to equality, all of these things are distinctly Christian principles, and and the reason uh, that underlies all of it is Jesus, which is so um, amazing, because James is writing about Jesus. So everything he's writing about, he's writing about in light of who Jesus is, how he experienced Jesus, Now, check out what James says then. After he's taught on these different subjects of trials and temptations, of listening and doing, of true equality, look at what James writes. Look at what he says. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds. Now he's been talking about faith this whole time. He's been talking about all these principles of faith and what we believe about how we should live as followers of Jesus. And he's basically saying, but what good is it if you have faith, but you have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, this is the equivalent of today when we see people in need and we're like, I'll pray for you, right? Go in peace, which I use all the time, by the way. Go in peace, keep warm and well felt, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, by simply mentally assenting to something, it is actually not faith uh, if it is not accompanied by action. In other words, your faith, if that's the case, is actually dead In other words, faith or belief has to go out, has to go with how we respond or how we act. Uh, Now, this is such a stirring principle. Now, even if you're someone who's not a Christian here, um, in fact, maybe one of the reasons why you're not a Christian is because you've always thought Christians, this is so true to what they often do. They're people who talk a good game about what it means to be a kind person, about a forgiving person, uh, a loving person, and yet they're judgmental or they're hypocritical. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why you don't follow Jesus. Well, here it is. Guess what? James and the earliest Christians, and even Jesus himself, also was against Anyone who did not live a life of integrity where their faith and their actions aligned. Now, this is why James is talking about, because what he saw even in Jesus, here's what was so stunning. Jesus' harshest critiques were to the religious leaders, those people who talked a good game, who talked about faith. This is what it means to follow God. And Jesus would call them hypocrites, you brood of vipers. The harshest words were meant for them. Why? It's because somehow they were hypocritical. Their faith and their deeds did not match. Uh, There's a whole section of the Old Testament that's called the prophets. And basically, why did the prophets exist? The prophets existed to tell the people of God that they were full of it. That they were people that were not walking with faith. They were people who would talk about faith all the time. And yet, justice, mercy, the ways of God were not being enacted. So, in other words, James is just continuing the tradition, which, whether you're a Christian or you're not, intuitively, all of us are like, yes, it is good to have integrity. And essentially, what James is saying is this. He's basically saying, talk is cheap. High five your neighbor. Say, talk is cheap. The dishes are still in the sink. And if you're... A spouse here, high-five your neighbor and say, no, don't do that right now. Some of you are like, okay, let's do this. talk is cheap. I mean, this is, essentially, this is what James is saying. Talk is cheap. It's not just about what we say with our words. It's how it's reflected in our thoughts, words, and deeds, in in the way that we behave. Now, here's the thing. As a pastor here, uh, my son, he's right here in the front row. He's 12 years old now, and he listens to, like, every single sermon right now. And uh, you know, so he's like listening. He's like, "Oh wow, hey, Dad." You know, a few weeks ago, you talked about trials and temptations, and it's what we do when we respond to when we're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. So I, I kind of remember that one time, Dad. Uh, you know, like there are these moments, right? So like now that my son, he's getting older a teenager, uh, he just notices things now, you know? He notices the way I live, the way that I treat people, the way that I treat mom. And he's listening to every sermon. Uh, actually, it was his 12th birthday uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was basically like, hey, now that you're 12, you don't have to sit here and listen to me preach anymore. And he's like, no, I want, I want to listen. I want to, I want to keep you accountable here, you know? <laughs> I mean, so I, I just want you to know, like, he he sees... The Drew, uh, the dad, the dad. That's uh, that's not just on stage, but behind closed doors. And one of the hardest things for any person, for any human person, especially in today's world where there's a public persona and a private persona, is how do we integrate the two? Now, especially in today's digital age, it is so easy, isn't it, to just present one kind of public image, but how do we integrate the two? Now, in the culture that I grew up in, which was also kind of stems from Far East Asian kind of Confucian background, which had a lot to do with a public life as well as a private life. And so the way that I grew up, so much of it was about, oh, the way that you act in public is in some ways different than how you will act in private. In fact, you should never let anyone know what's happening in private. Instead, you should always have this kind of demeanor and a way of living so that you show to the rest of the world of how put together we are and how good we are. Now, so much of my own Christian faith has been walking into like, what does it mean to live with integrity? With like a, an integrated public and private life. Uh, having a teenager helps uh, in that endeavor. But it's one of the most difficult things in today's world. And this is why James, he's actually talking about this very same thing. Listen, faith What you say with your words and what you do with your actions, it needs to be aligned. There needs to be an integrity there. And essentially what he's saying is talk is cheap. It's not just about talking about doing things, about being a forgiving person, but you're not a forgiving person when it comes to your relationships. It's not only talking about being generous, but with your money, you're actually quite stingy or you're just mostly you're spending it on yourself and your own family and whatever else it might look like. Uh, We can talk all day long about all sorts of manners in which we use kind words, but then at work, we can become a different person. At the end of the day, talk is cheap. And this is what James is saying. Now, you've got to understand, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, the idea of talking and the way of persuasion was actually a part of the air that they breathed. The reason why was because persuasion and rhetoric was so highly valued, especially in the court of law, especially in the ancient Greco-Roman world. So, for instance, Aristotle, in the 4th century B.C.E., He wrote uh, The Art of Rhetoric. And now The Art of Rhetoric, Aristotle was one of the pioneers of this discipline where even today, I was a rhetoric major in university. This was one of the central texts that we read and it was a book about persuasion. How do we persuade people? Now, he actually distills it down into, when you think of persuasion, he distills it down into three main words. And here are the words. It's ethos, it's pathos, And it's logos. Now, these are Greek words, and you can probably get a sense of what some of these words are, right? So ethos. We get words like ethics or ethical from it. Ethos, what that referred to, what Aristotle was referring to, was the ethos of the speaker, is, is the character, is a person who's sharing this, is that p- person an authoritative figure around the subject? And is that person, does that person have uh, the character to be reliable in the court of law as a witness? This is where uh, in legal settings, for instance, uh, you, know, you go after someone's reliability, their character reliability, when it comes to their witness and their testimony. And, and so Aristotle talked about ethos is incredibly important. Does this person have a reliable character? There was pathos as well. Pathos, we get words like uh, pathological or sympathy or empathy. Uh, Pathos was the mood or the feel of an audience. So in persuasion, there's a a way in which someone might know like, okay, what is the audience that I'm speaking to? What kind of relates to them? So one of the reasons that I make fun of Staten Island all the time is because no one hears from Staten Island? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Does anyone here from Staten Island? How is, that's right, how, sorry, how. Uh, maybe, I, I, so my, the pathos, I'm, I'm missing it big time here, you know. Uh, and then there's logos. Logos is basically the logic of one's argument. Is this reasonable? Does it make sense? And what Aristotle says is all three of these actually need to converge together for a message or a persuasive message to be given. Uh, All of these things need to converge to the reliability of one's character, the, the understanding of one's context and the mood, as well as the logic of one's argument. Now, here's the thing. James and the Apostle Paul and others are swimming in this kind of thought related to persuasion. Now, here's what's so stunning, of course, is that James, he's basically saying, Jesus is Lord. He's basically, my brother is Lord. In other words, Jesus, James is basically able to say that when it comes to ethos, pathos, and logos, he's been able to experience the truth, the veracity, the weightiness of following Jesus. That's why he says, Jesus is Lord. Now, here's what's so stunning about this. And in addition to that, if ethos is so significant, reliability of a speaker. See, if my, if my character is shot, then what ends up happening? It's like, why am I listening to this person at all? Now, for James, he grew up with Jesus. If anything, he had things that he could say about Jesus. Like, no, 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 no. You teach love your enemies. You're teaching blessed are the poor in spirit. And what James could say is like, Jesus, your reliability is totally shot in terms of your character. But The reality is, he calls him Lord. One of the reasons why he calls him Lord is because when it came to the ethics of Jesus, Jesus was someone, when it came to faith and works, it was remarkably consistent And in the same way, when James is teaching about faith and deeds, he's just simply saying, listen, this is what I witnessed about Jesus when it came to trials and temptations, when it came to being slow to speak and quick to listen, slow to anger. When it comes to treating people with true equality, what James is saying throughout the book of James is, he's like, listen, what I saw in Jesus was the most remarkable ethos of someone who was teaching out of their life, where there was a true integration Now, look at what James says though, right? Because he's trying to hammer home this point about faith and deeds. And look at what he says. He says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. In other words, deeds become the evidence of one's faith. You believe that there is one God. Well, good. You go to church all the time. That's good. You say things all the time about how you believe in God. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. Oh, snap. He's saying, you have all these religious principles, you see, but this is all within the same tradition of the Old Testament prophets when they're calling out people. You say that you're a Christian, but the way that you approach relationships, oh, the way you approach relationships, I don't know. Maybe you approach it more like a demon. The way you approach money, maybe you approach it maybe just like a demon, where you might say this is what you believe, but you don't actually act upon it. Now, I realize those are harsh words, and I didn't even expect to say that. <laughs> However, what an invitation of like, see, to actually say this is what I believe. If I believe that God is everything to me, this is what it means to put faith in God. It means to say, if I believe in you, God, it means that with everything I have, my thoughts, my words, my money, my money, my time, my energy. I'm going to surrender it to you, Jesus, and to give it to you and to follow you. Now it's way easier to say that than to actually do it. And James is basically like, talk is cheap, even the demons believe, and they shudder. Now Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan priest, one of the things that he writes, um, especially in a world that is so easy to talk a lot, especially on social media, The digital footprint that exists where people can be social justice warriors from a keyboard. People can say all sorts of things. People can lob all sorts of critiques at other people. I mean, this is the world that we inhabit, especially in the polarized world that we live in. Now, here's what Roar says. He says, the best critique of the bad is a practice of the better. And I remember hearing this and realizing, here's what happens in the world that we live in today. It's so full of critique. We're critiquing what people believe, what they say, what they think, what they post. And here's what ends up happening. We're critiquing people all over the place. And what ends up happening, it becomes this big polarized vortex of digital engagement, Criticism, we live in such a harsh, divided world because the way that we respond to criticism is by lobbing other criticisms at other people. So, I mean, just for instance, me as a Christian and even as a pastor here, there's all sorts of ways in which our church falls short, many significant ways. Uh, Some of you are like, yes, there are. Now, I recognize like there's all sorts of critiques and complaints that you guys might have about our church, about me, about others, Here's what happens to me whenever I field critiques. This is what happens. Um, I start, you know, so immediately, like a critique comes, and here's what happens. I'm like, what? Well, you know what I could say about that person? Or what? Like, we're not as bad as that church. Or what? Like, I mean, what happens in me is I want to get defensive. I basically want to critique right back. Um, sorry. Uh, Some of you are like, I'm not going to lob any criticisms there. But that's the human sinful part of me. Now, here's what Roar is saying. What if the way that we responded, whenever critique would come or whenever critique would arise within each one of us, the best way that we can do this is just to begin to practice the better. See, the best critique of the bad, the best response we can have to criticism, the best way that we can actually be a witness in the world instead of critiquing others is just start practicing a better story. Just start practicing a better story. So if someone says, Drew, uh, Hope Church doesn't care about justice and mercy. Part of me is like, what? You're right, actually. We don't care as much as we should, and we should just start to practice what's better. In many ways, I mean, this is the wisdom of what James is saying as well. Practicing, doing deeds that demonstrate our faith speaks much louder than simply typing something on Twitter. Being a people who actually live into the values of the things that we say that we value. One of the things that uh, has just been so cool for me to see in our church community, as many of you know, the migrant crisis uh, that's kind of flooded our city along with uh, asylum, asylum seekers all over. And there's been a group of folks, um, uh, there's a distribution that happens in Tompkins Square Park down in the East Village. It was so encouraging uh, to me was last week, I had a couple people in our church community, including Angela and Leslie. They come up to me afterwards, and they were just like, hey, we just feel this burden to help with what's happening with the migrant crisis, and they linked up with a a few other people at our church in the East Village who also got wind of what was happening in the neighborhood, and this is a a collection of other churches as well as nonprofits that get together just to provide feeding for people um, for some of these migrant families and resources And uh, all of a sudden, it kind of also turned into a a collection of gently used shoes and coats and scarves. And one thing led to another, and all these people started to get together about what was already happening on Saturdays at Tompkins Square Park. And now, tomorrow, uh, our East Village location is actually opening up a a shoe store, uh, a free shoe store for migrant families, where they collected all these donations and where they're gonna take people's measurements. And be able to give them either brand new or gently used shoes. And just, I was just so stunned at the initiative and the faith that was putting itself to work in many of these folks. And just so encouraged by it. Now, here, here's the thing. There are other nonprofits that we've supported that have been doing incredible work. There's the New Life Community Health Clinic, which just this past week is giving uh, free showers and healthcare to scores of um, homeless people. There's uh, St. Paul's House, which is an organization that we partner with. we DAISY, our youth director. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they're providing feedings as well as a youth kind of initiative. So there's all sorts of things that are happening institutionally, but I was so encouraged to see people starting things organically as well where their faith called them to action, to do something about it. And so I don't know how long these these Saturday gatherings will be. I don't know how long we'll have a pop-up shoe store down at the East Village location. But here's what I am encouraged by, is that people felt strongly enough that they would do something. Uh, Shane Claiborne, who's an author and an activist, one of the things he says is, may we become the answer to our prayers. Some of us are so used to saying, I'll pray for that, I'll pray for that. Well, what if we became the answer to our prayers? Now, I recognize some of you guys are like, oh my goodness, Drew, I'm overwhelmed. I just moved to the city. I'm having a hard time making ends meet. I'm working multiple jobs. I don't know. Now you're talking about a migrant crisis. And gosh, another thing for me to also get involved in on Saturdays, I don't know if I have the time or the margin for that. Or maybe you're someone who's like, you're like, I'm a mom of a two-year-old, and by the time two o'clock p.m. rolls around, I am done, (laughs) you know? Wherever you are in your journey, here's what I want you to know. We as a church community... We don't have to save the whole world. But one of the invitations of God is we can all do our part. Uh, At the end of last year, we were inviting people to give to Extending Hope. And we were able to raise, I don't remember the exact figure, but I know that last last year we talked about how our congregation, we were able to donate uh, both money as well as the money that we help organizations save by renting at the hub, close to half a million dollars. Now, Of course, like, it wasn't just one person that did that. It was all of us. Whatever you have margin to give in your life right now, whatever ways of action, whether it's giving money or your time or energy, all of this is just a response of faith that we can do collectively. Uh, High five your neighbors. Say, we did that. Do that real quick. So... Here's what I know. Like, people can charge us, uh, our church, with like, you guys don't care about the poor and the marginalized. You guys don't care. The Christians are so judgmental and harsh. And here's, here's my response to that. I'm like, it's actually worse than you think. We are, we're, worse. we're probably worse than you think. But here's the, little, here's the little of what we're trying to do as a response. We're just trying our best to serve to redistribute our money, our time, our energy. We've got a group of people who, God bless them, have been mobilized now to do this pop-up thing down in the East Village. And we've got a group of people like Dave and Daisy and others who are institutionally creating organizations and nonprofits that are gonna serve for the long run in our city. And we as a church community, whether you work in finance or in law or whatever else, those people are actually supporting those folks to serve some of the most marginalized communities in our city, may we become the answer to our prayers. And maybe instead of spending so much time critiquing other people, what I need to do is I just need to, just do this temperature check of being like, God, just what do you have me to do? What part do I have to play in the renewal of the city? How are you calling me to say, just talk is cheap, what does it mean for me to actually act out my faith in these various ways? Now, there's actually this uh, graph that I'd love to show you. And it's, it's not a graph. It's basically this image. And it's an image of how faith and deeds work together. So on the top, you see faith. And faith is formed by a mental picture that we have about God. Now, where does this mental picture come from? Uh, John Wesley, he once wrote about kind of the Wesleyan quadrilateral. There There are four ways that we experience or get to know God. One, of course, is scripture. The scriptures teach us who Jesus is and who Jesus was and who God is. Now, the scriptures teach us, as well as reason, Right? What we, well, like our own faculties and our mind, but also tradition. Now, in tradition, this word refers to not only history, but it also refers to community, right? The communal discernment of history of the ways that God has revealed himself, Uh, and in addition to that, our own experiences. Now, my faith, my mental picture of God then comes from scripture, reason, experience, tradition. This mental picture is formed. But what happens when I have this mental picture? Do I just go on living my life and whatever? It doesn't affect anything? No, it actually needs to be um, uh, exercised. Just like my muscles need to be exercised, I need to start doing something with this mental picture. And it comes with a certain kind of expectancy. Wow, this is who God is. God is a God of grace and mercy. God calls me to be a person of grace and mercy. Now, here's what this means, is if I have this mental picture, I come with expectancy of trying to learn what it means to be a person of grace and mercy. Out of that, I begin to try to exercise these muscles. I'm not used to being a person who extends forgiveness. I'm not used to being a person who says I'm sorry about things. But because of my mental picture of God, here's what happens. I have to exercise these muscles that are underdeveloped. So I have to learn how to begin to say to somebody, say to my wife, listen, honey, I'm really sorry. That was my bad, full stop. And she's like, that's right, it was your fault. And I'm like... You're right, it's, it's my fault. I'm sorry, full stop. Right, like, like there's, a, there's a way in which my faith then is now informing things, right? Like so my faith, my mental picture of God, God is a God who owns everything. God created everything, everything is in his hands. And he says, I want, I want you to actually with your money, your hard earned money, I want you to start using your money and be generous with it. And you can trust, even when you're generous with it, God will provide. Now, this mental picture, it needs to be exercised. I need to start jumping around or doing some bench press reps or something. I need to be be able to do something. Say, okay, I'm gonna exercise this faith and I'm gonna come with expectancy, believing God, this is who you say you are. I'm going to act on it. This is where deeds come in. Now, here's what happens. After I've done these deeds... Will God come through? Will he show himself to be the person that you believed him to be? That when you are generous with your money, God will actually still provide. In fact, God will even bless. Wow. That when you actually take a posture of humility, that you're able to basically say, okay, I wanna be a person of grace and mercy. That means with my spouse, I'm gonna act this out and basically say I'm sorry and ask for forgiveness. And try by God's grace to now become a person of blessing and not criticism and cursing, but instead a person of blessing in my marriage. Like, it needs to be exercised. I need to learn new muscles, ways of behaving. And here's what ends up happening. After God, I believe, shows himself to be true in the ways that we act, then our faith gets strengthened and it gets refined. Now, here's the thing. Most of us, though, we stop with the mental picture thing. We're like, oh, this is good. This is good. Yeah, that's a good mental picture of God. God is gracious. God is merciful. Don't touch my money. God is good. God is gracious. But listen, if you knew how hard it is to live with my wife, right? There's all sorts of ways in which we have this mental picture, but we're not acting on it. We're not behaving in such a manner that we truly believe that God is who he says he is. Maybe some of us haven't experienced the power, the wonder, the strength, the redemption of God because we've never acted on our faith. And yet that's the invitation. Now, here's a question that you're probably having. You're probably like, wait a minute. Why in the world should I even do that? do you, do you realize who you're talking to? I'm someone who has advanced degrees, I have figured out a lot about my life. In fact, I was someone who grew up in a family where my parents weren't there for me. I'm a self-made person. That's why I moved to New York. Look at the job I have, look at the career I have, look at what I've been able to do with my own life. I mean, some of us might say like, why in the world would I want to trust in God? When honestly, I can just play certain platitudes with God and the rest of the time, I trust myself. Why would I do that with my money, my time, my energy? My thoughts, why would I do that? Remember we talked about the ethos that James witnessed with Jesus. See, here's what Christians believe about God, and this is what's so different than other world religions. See, the news that Jesus came to bring was that God is a God of love and kindness who cares for you more than you probably even care for yourself. And if you want to doubt or if you want to question, I don't know if I can believe in this God. I don't know if I can trust this God. Well, the scriptures tell us that Jesus came into the world because he loves us. That whether you believed it or not, that he would come to demonstrate that he loves you so deeply that he would actually give his life for you. And James was someone who witnessed the utter power and glory of a God of merciful, sacrificial love. And it's because of that that James would become so convinced of this God that he would say, this is a God that is worth trusting in. This is where the early church, they believed that not only was God powerful, but they believed that God was kind, that he was loving, that he was for us. And it's only when you and I, it's only when we can begin to trust that this is the God that we serve A God who is not vindictive and out to get you, a God who is not stingy or withholding from you, but a God who is actually lavish in his love for you. A God who tells you that when you entrust, right, when you surrender your life, when you surrender your stuff, when you surrender all of your life to God, God says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to be all that you need. The question is, how many of us have had that opportunity to say, God, I really do want to trust you. I want to trust you with my relationships. I want to trust you with my romantic life. I want to trust you with my money. I want to trust you with my children. I want to trust you with my career, my future. What if today was the invitation of, will you begin to entrust your life To Jesus and say, God, I want to trust and believe that you are beautiful and you are good and you are kind and you are loving. And when you've been able to do that, then it's time to start exercising that, to start really trusting God. I'm going to trust that you are loving and kind and I'm going to follow you.